since the beginning of this year, we have been traveling through this study of the life of Jesus together as John comes to us and presents him to us in his gospel. And today, we have finally come to the part of the story of the life of Jesus that John has been moving us towards all the way from the beginning of this year through this great gospel. Today, Jesus will be arrested. And that will mark the commencement of his sufferings. And it's sufferings, and this is a really important point, that only Jesus Christ understands in the moment. Please know that. The chief priests and the Pharisees are going to come with Judas and a whole bunch of Roman soldiers, and they're going to arrest Jesus today, but they don't know what they're doing. I mean, they know that what they're doing is wicked in the sense that they know that they are coming to condemn a just man, a righteous man, an innocent man to death. So that much they're guilty of, and they understand, and they know that, but they have no idea that Jesus Christ is actually the Messiah of God. They have no idea what the mission of the true Messiah of God is, and they also have no concept by which they could understand that the mission of the real Messiah, instead of being defeated by suffering and death, is actually accomplished by suffering and death. So they come, but they don't know what they're doing. They don't get it. The Romans who go along with them, well, they don't get it either. They don't know he's the Messiah. They honestly, I don't think, care. They're just doing whatever it is that they need to do to appease the Jewish religious leaders and keep the peace in that particular day, in that particular season of the Passover when everything and all the tensions are running high. So they're going to, in a sense, be the instruments in the hands of these men who are seeking to put Jesus to suffering and ultimately to put him to death, but they don't know he's the Messiah. They don't know what his real mission is, and they don't know how the real mission of the real Messiah is accomplished, i.e., suffering and death, and here's the kicker, the disciples don't get it either. They just don't. Now, they do get the fact that he's the Messiah. They are on board with the fact that this is the one whom God has sent into the world, but they don't know yet what his real mission is. And they have no category by which they can understand how the real mission of the real Messiah could actually be accomplished as opposed to defeated by his suffering and by his death. You see, in their society, in their opinion, in their experience, a dead Messiah, and they had seen other Messiahs, was a failed Messiah. Now, why is that? Because they had a whole different mission in their mind for the Messiah of God than Jesus did. So in other words, they expected that God would, yes, send a Messiah, but that the Messiah would not come with the mission of delivering his people from sin and death. And then from the delivered people of this world, every language, every nation, every tribe, every color, every age of man, collect up this people out of all the different peoples of man, and from this people form a new nation, a royal priesthood, it's called. We're called a holy nation who will someday enjoy an entirely new heaven and an entirely new earth. See, they thought ethnically, they thought geographically. They thought that God would indeed send a Messiah, but that the mission of the Messiah that God would send would be to deliver them from the political, from the economic, from the social, from the cultural, and even from the religious oppression that they endured and were suffering under the Roman Empire who governed over them in their day, and that he would do it not by suffering and death. My goodness, that's how you knew he wasn't the Messiah. How can he overthrow the Romans if the Romans kill him? But by the sword by the devices of men. Bottom line, these guys wanted their nation back. And they thought that the mission of the Messiah 
was to come and to do that for them, not by suffering and dying, but by leading a revolt. And here's the deal, and it's true, by the way, for them, and it's true for us. That's not Jesus. He is the Messiah, but that is not in any way, shape, or form His mission. That's why I think when you go back into the narrative of the life of Jesus, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, and you go to Mark chapter 8, so long before we get to the night of his arrest and the commencement of his sufferings, Jesus is trying to explain this stuff to these guys, you know, because this is some new stuff. This is a paradigm shift in a major way for them, and so it's not like, you know, he doesn't discuss it with them. No, 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 he introduces all these concepts. And so in Mark chapter 8, we find an example of that. Jesus is teaching his disciples, guys, you don't get it. Here's the deal. I must be rejected by the chief priests and the Pharisees. I must suffer many things. I must die, and then I must be raised again from the dead on the third day. When he starts breaking out that message, Peter pulls him aside and starts saying things to him like, what are you talking about? Stop! This is not good for the movement. People are leaving. Do you see them? They're walking away. Nobody wants to hear that message. That's not the message. It's not the mission. And what does Jesus say to him? I'm going to read it to you. He could not have chosen stronger language. Remember this language. He says, but turning and seeing his disciples standing there listening to this conversation that he's having with Peter, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. And here's why. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus is saying, Peter, I I didn't come to give you your nation back, not by sword, not by ballot. It's not my mission. It's way too small. It's way too little. My mission's very different than that. I came to create a new and eternal nation out of a called out people from every nation. And here's how that happens. I take their sin upon myself, and in their place I suffer and I die. And so I want to ask you today as we move into this message, as we watch the arrest of Jesus and all the goings-on that are entailed in this story, I want to ask you on the front end, and I'm going to ask you in the end as well, what is your mind set on? And I'm asking you this knowing that we are in the midst of one of the most contentious election seasons ever. Is your mind on the things of God, or is your mind on the things of man? I want to push and prod your real citizenship. I want to challenge your heart and actual mission, and I want you to see if it's the mission of the Savior. Because I think that we all agree with the fact that the things of man are really, really important. I mean, you know, no matter who you're going to vote for, no matter who you support, no matter where you come down on the issues, I think we all at least would go, yep, they are really, really, really important, probably far more important even than we think. What I want to push and prod you on is that the things of God are even more important, that they demand your primary allegiance, that the kingdom of God is your primary citizenship, that the Savior of God is your king, not elected official. In fact, so much more important, the things of God and the things of man in this sense don't even reside in the same neighborhood. 
Think about it with me. So what is your mind set on? We pick up our study in John chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. John says this. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, so when Jesus, who we've been with in the upper room now for seven or eight weeks, finally finished all of his teaching with his disciples in the upper room, again, night that he's betrayed, he closes that meeting in prayer. We covered the prayer last week. When all of that is said and done, what happens? It says that he went out with his disciples across the the brook Kidron. Now, I want you to follow me geographically on this because the geography is helpful. They come down out of the city. They walk down, literally, into the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is shallow. The Kidron Valley is narrow. This is not a big parcel of land that we're talking about. This all happens in a pretty tight place. They go across the brook Kidron, okay? It's really a weighty. It runs with water in the rainy season. It's mostly dry the rest of the year. You don't need a bridge to get over it. You don't have to swing across like Tarzan on a vine. You just walk through it. So they come out of the city. They walk down into this shallow valley. They walk across the brook Kidron, and then they come up onto the lower part of the Mount of Olives, which is directly beneath the Temple Mount. And the Mount of Olives is not like a Colorado mountain. It's not even a North Carolina mountain. It's like a big hill. That's it. And at the bottom of that big hill... John says that there was a garden, and we know from the other Gospels that the garden that he's talking about is the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane meaning literally oil press. This is not a garden full of wheat and, you know, tomatoes and carrots and peas. This is an olive grove, and in all likelihood, this is a privately owned olive grove. It's a walled-off privately owned olive grove with a door, a way in and a way out, and in all likelihood as well, the owner of this privately owned Olive Grove said to Jesus many, many moons prior to this night, hey, you know what? I know the crowds are all over you when you're in town. I know that you guys are always probably looking for some place that you can separate from everyone and detach and, you know, power down and camp out. Use my grove. It's private. What's fascinating is when you go there today, you can stand amongst at least a few probably of the same trees. It's interesting, they've uncovered, and you can see it, an ancient oil press. It's not a big area, so it's not hard to figure out where this is. So they come down out of the city, they come through the Kidron Valley, shallow, narrow, cross the little brook, up onto the lower part of the Mount of Olives, and they enter into the private garden. And in all likelihood, they shut the door. And it says that when Jesus and his disciples, they entered into this place, or I'm sorry, it says now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, and here's why, John tells us, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so you have to think this through a little bit. Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him. They've already discussed that. Jesus has actually sent Judas off to go do whatever it is that he's going to do and to do it quickly. You'll recall that language. Jesus knows that Judas knows that this is the place... Jesus and his guys are going to be going this night. And Jesus knows as well that it's the perfect place for them to come arrest him. Why? Well, because it's walled in, tough to get out of. And secondly, one of the things that has insulated Christ from the hostilities of these men have been the crowds. All of the people who love Jesus, all of the people who follow Christ and so forth, you know, they're a fear of the crowd. Well, there's no fear of the crowd in a private garden. Jesus knows all of these things, and notwithstanding that, Jesus goes there anyway. What does that tell you? 
He wants to be found. Why? Because his mission is not to deliver any nation, including the nation-state of Israel, from political oppression. His mission is to deliver a people from every nation, from sin and death, and to form in and through them a new nation with which he will eternally live. And he knows that the only way to do that is not the sword, it's not the ballot, it's the laying down of his life. It's suffering and death. And so he intentionally goes to the place where he knows that he's going to be found, and that's exactly what happens. We see this in verse 3, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers. Now, I want to elaborate on that because the language tells you that what that really is, it's it's a cohort of Roman soldiers. That's important because a cohort of Roman soldiers numbered anywhere between 200 and 600 soldiers. So he's not going there with 10 or 12 guys. This is a small army that he's coming with. Judas, having procured this 200 to 600 band of soldiers from the Romans, and so like in addition to that, some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, he went there with what? With lanterns and torches and weapons. What is John doing? The same thing he did with us in the upper room. Through his graphic, detailed language, he's inviting us into the garden with him, and he's saying, I want you to see this from this perspective. It's an interesting perspective. The last time I stood there, the thing that, I, that struck me was that from that vantage point, you know, a little bit up on the hill, at night, Jesus could, and I'm sure did, clearly see two to 600 guys with torches, and lanterns, and shiny weapons coming, and not from 100 feet off, from a long way off. And yet he doesn't run. And yet he doesn't hide. Why? Well, what's the mission? It's not. It's not to rescue this nation, the nation state of Israel or any other, from its political problems and oppressions. But it is instead to call out a new nation that he makes one in himself and with whom he will forever live. So he doesn't run and he doesn't hide. In fact, quite the opposite. Look what John says in verse 4. He tells us that Jesus, having some idea of what might possibly happen to him, no, knowing all that would happen to him, having watched these guys walk all the way to the door of this private garden to come and get him, knowing that that's why they had come, came forward. So what is he doing? He's putting his disciples behind him within the walled enclosure, and he himself now steps into the doorway. He's in between them and the soldiers. And he said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, oh, Jesus, wait a minute. Um, Oh, I got it. Brown hair, brown eyes, beard, long flowing robes, kind of like these. Sandals says, verily, verily a lot. They're like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, you just missed him. You know, he was here. He went that way. If you hurry up, you can go. That's not what he does. He's not trying to avoid these guys. You see, you know, they think he's played into their hands. They're playing into his hands. This is his mission. Jesus said to them, I 
am, to which the ESV adds he. And adds that probably because it's kind of awkward if it doesn't add that. I mean, if you think about it, it's like, who, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, I am, you know, and they're all like, and? You are, that's it, just I am. That's all that it actually says. It feels really awkward, so they throw in a he. You can understand that, unless you remember this gospel that we've been studying all year, in which case it's not awkward at all. Seven times prior to this, Jesus has reached back into the Old Testament to the story of the burning bush, where God himself declares his memorial name to all generations to Moses. The infinite and invisible, intangible, incomprehensible God has asked his name, and God says, my name is I am. And I'm sure Moses is like, you are... God's like, nope, that's it. That's the name. Jesus has seven times prior to this night grabbed hold of that name, taken it to himself, and attached it to an image involving life. I am the bread of life. The bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in the deadly perils of darkness. It's the idea but we'll have the light of life. I am the door. Now, what's the door? All the way through the Bible, what does the door do? The door separates destruction and death from deliverance and life. Parenthetically, as Jesus stands there in the doorway, where are his disciples? They're behind the door, aren't they? I mean, they are in the position of deliverance and life. Where are his enemies who have come themselves to destroy Christ? Destruction and death. You want to be on the right side of the door is the idea. I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life to rescue the lives of his sheep. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the true vine, the source of true life and fruitfulness for my people who are my branches. And so John says that Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, having watched these guys in the darkness of night, coming all two to six hundred of them with torches and lanterns and shiny metal weapons all the way to the gate of this door, came forward to it himself, put himself between he and the, or these armies and the disciples, and he says to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus said to them, I am, no he, just I am. And then Jesus, or John rather, tells us that Judas who betrayed him was standing with them, meaning with the enemies of the Lord having forsaken the bread of life in favor, if you know the story of the bread of this world. And now notice what happens. John says that when Jesus said to them, I am, to which the ESV adds, he, what did they do? It's kind of cool. It says they drew back and fell to the ground. Wow. That's odd. You know, it's interesting to read some of the different commentaries and how these guys handle this stuff, particularly the ones who feel like they need to give some sort of a naturalistic, meaning non-supernatural explanation to this, because the best that I read and that they can come up with is, well, okay, it's the Mount of Olives, so it's, it's on a hill, and they're sort of all two to 600 of them standing on this hill, and then when Jesus 
declares that he is, you know, I mean, I am. So he claims that name of God and he says that. The chief priests and the Pharisees who are standing in the front are so offended that they like startle, you know, they stumble backwards into the person next to them and then the person behind them and then they trip over that guy and then that guy knocks over the person behind him and then he knocks over the person behind him and sort of like this wave of massive domino effect sort of sweeps through two to 600 people and just wipes them all out. And I think that takes more faith to believe that honestly than than just to believe that when the invisible God made visible, the intangible God made tangible, the incomprehensible God who assumed our flesh and came to us in the most comprehensible form that he could have chosen, declared the glory of his memorial name, which is I am, that even his enemies had no choice but to fall at his feet. Look, Jesus is not a victim. He's not being taken. He's not overwhelmed by 600 or 600,000 or 600 million soldiers. They will not take him by their overwhelming force. And he's going, oh, I guess I have to go with you because, you know, your power is, uh, it's ridiculous. He's saying, look, here's my mission. Here's what it's not. Here's what it is. It's not nationalistic. It's nationalistic only in the sense that I'm calling people from every nation and I'm forming a new nation. We'll call that nation the true Israel or my church. And here's how I have to do that. It's not going to be by the sword. It's not going to be by the ballot. That's not the way I operate. It's going to be by self-sacrifice and suffering. Mine and my people as well. So John says, verse 6, that when Jesus said to them, I am not he, but I am, and then they add the word he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And then he says, so, you know, after I guess they got up and dusted themselves off, he asked them again, he's pursuing, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, then let these men go. He offers himself in their place. Take me, let them go. It's the gospel. Take me, Father. Punish me. But let these people go who believe in me. And John comments and says, This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have not lost one. And now notice what happens. John tells us that Then, Mr. Get Thee Behind Me Satan, Simon Peter, who obviously, clearly, manifestly still does not understand what the mission of Christ actually is or how the mission of Christ actually is accomplished, having a sword, or more likely it was a long knife, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And John tells us the servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, and please don't miss this because here's what he's saying. You still don't get it. You still are setting your mind on the things of man and not the things of God. He says, Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup of suffering that the Father has given me? And then if you know the account from Luke's gospel, he reaches up and he takes this man's ear, and he heals, he undoes, actually, what Peter had done rashly, foolishly, ignorantly, having misunderstood the mission. 
and the means by which the mission is accomplished. Jesus did not come to deliver any nation, including this nation, state of Israel. He came to deliver all those who would put their faith and trust in him and make a nation out of them. And it's done not by the sword, but by suffering and death. And I fear sometimes, honestly, particularly during election seasons, that like the disciples of Jesus, we forget that. We forget what the real mission is, and we forget how it is that the real mission is accomplished. And just so that I'm not misunderstood, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with our standing up and declaring the truth in the midst of our city, in the midst of our nation. And in fact, if we don't do that, who is going to do that? Now, I think we need to do it more graciously and humbly than we do, however. But it would be wrong for us not to do that. So don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with voting. In fact, I think it would be wrong for a believer in Christ not to vote and not to vote Christianly as an act of worship, bringing my vote like I bring everything else before the Lord and going, dear God, with the options I have, what would be most pleasing to you? I'm not even saying that there's something wrong with becoming a political activist, but I am saying that there is something very wrong with becoming a slanderer, with becoming combative, with becoming ugly, with becoming untruthful spinning and all that other business. I think there's something manifestly wrong with that. And my fear every election season, and I fear it because I see it, I fear it because I hear it in every Christian gathering that I attend, I fear it because I read it in email after email, I fear it, frankly, because I feel it in me welling up and wanting to come out, is that we're going to forget where our primary citizenship lies, what our real mission is, who our real leader is. And without even realizing what's happened, we're going to be pulling out our short little swords and hacking away at the people that we're called to lay our lives down to save. While our Savior all the while is running around us, putting ears back on heads and saying things like, guys, you still don't get it, do you? My kingdom is not of this world, and if it was, then my servants would fight with the sword to prevent my arrest from the Jews. But I am building another kingdom, an eternal kingdom one that is founded in my blood and fueled by yours. So Jesus says to Peter in verse 6, put your sword into its sheath. Good grief. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And then John says to the band of soldiers, And their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And then Mark tells us, if you know the story there, And all these guys took off. They ran. Why? Because they had not set their minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so I want to ask you again, what is your mind set on right now? Five questions. You and the Lord. Question number one. Over the course of the last four years, have you fretted more over the mission of Jesus Christ, you know, his eternal mission, the kingdom that never dies or ends, that mission, okay, to the people in your family, in your office, in your school, to the guy across the street, the people next door, in this city, in this country, and in this world, as you have fretted over the political, economic, social, cultural, and religious issues 
in our nation today? If you had to place your passions in a scale, which way would it tilt? Now, they're big issues. I've affirmed how greatly important they are. But they don't live in the same neighborhood with the things of God, guys. How in the world could they? And have you realized that in a radical democracy like ours, our hope is alone in a renovation of the soul of our nation, and that happens one soul at a time. A different way of saying is what we need is revival. That's the most curative thing. All right, question number two, as if that one wasn't fun enough. Over the course of the last four years, have you been as vocal about the gospel of Jesus Christ as you are about the so-called gospel of whatever candidate or party that you support? Have you initiated as many conversations about Jesus as you have about whoever or whatever? And have you been as passionate? And have you been as informed Number three, over the course of the last four years, have you spent as much time reading and studying and communing with God and His Word as you have spent reading and studying about the various political, economic, social, cultural, and religious issues of our day? Number four, over the course of the last four years, have you spent as much time praying for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ as you have for the advancement of or the recovery, however you want to look at it, of the nation we live in. Last question, and it's a doozy. Oh, I hate that word. It's the second time I've used it in a month. It's awful. It came right out of my dad's mouth. Doozy. So cool. You ready? Have you spent as much time praying for our president? It's who he is. Whether you elected him or not, whether you're planning to vote for him again or not, whether you agree with him on any issue or not, whether you like him personally or not, have you spent as much time praying for our president over the course of these last four years as you have spent criticizing him? I want to tell you, I get a lot of emails um, about the president. In fact, I'd venture to say that I've gotten 100 emails very critical about the president just in the last 30 days alone. As I thought about it, maybe I missed it, but I'm pretty sure that I have not received one email in four years, not one that said, you know what, he is the president and we probably ought to pray for him. Even though Paul comes to believers in the first century and commands them, and through this word, us, to pray for those in authority over us. And in his day, do you know who people were? Like, it was like he's talking about Nero. It's very humbling. Guys, Jesus Christ's mission is not nationalistic. It encompasses people instead from every nation. And it is nationalistic only in the sense that he is out to create a new nation. Together with which he will inhabit a new world and a new heaven as well. And the only way for that mission to be accomplished is through self-sacrifice and suffering. His and ours as we follow the path of dying to ourselves and living unto Him as we take up primarily His mission 
for our lives. And so then, as important as the things of men are, and they are really important, they're not little things, they're big. There is a greater mission. And I want to ask you today, what is your mind set on right now? Is it the things of God or is it the things of man? Check your emails. Check your prayer life. Check the conversations that you have. Check the passions that you have for Christ and His mission versus all of these other dying things. What is your mindset on? Things of God? Things of man? How does the scale tip for you? Let's pray.